This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. As we push through today's events, we cannot forget about the gathering storm to the south in Western Africa. While the Almoravids, under the leadership of Abu Bakr and Yusuf ibn Tashfin, are consolidating their grips over the Sahara and the Maghreb, Christian kingdoms in northern Iberia are making similar moves. These two powerful forces are on a collision course that will send ripples across the medieval world and act as somewhat of a precursor for the cataclysmic ending of the 11th century. So, today's episode, episode 66, is entitled Sancho II versus Alfonso VI. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. We ended our last episode with the death of Fernando the Great of Leon and Castile, and the subsequent fighting between Fernando's son for supremacy. But we will start today with a little incident in the Muslim taifa of Zaragoza, located in the northeast between Castile, Pamplona, Aragon, Valencia, and Toledo. The year is 1063, and King Fernando still had two years left to live, and he was currently storming through modern-day Portugal on the opposite side of the peninsula. See, Fernando I had cultivated a tenuous relationship with the Muslim leaders of Zaragoza, and it was crucial that Zaragoza remain under his suzerainty. They were a fairly powerful state, and their leader wasn't a pushover. For Christian-Muslim relations, thus political and economic relations between Christian North and Muslim South, to remain strong, Zaragoza insisted Fernando must remain semi-independent. They were vassals to him. They paid him protection money, called parias, and they needed to be respected from a distance. But Fernando I had an irksome brother, a brother who happened to be the king of Aragon, and Aragon was neighbors with Zaragoza. As Richard Fletcher wrote in The Quest for El Cid, quote, The background to this seems to have been a fair amount of fishing in the turbulent waters of Zaragozan politics, end quote. But then he continued later with, quote, As seen from the Castilian royal court, the balance of power in the peninsula required that Zaragoza be protected from the hostility of her neighbors, lest their territorial pickings render them overmighty. This possibility came closer to reality when the Aragonese captured Grouse, end quote. Now, there wasn't much to this town called Grouse, except to say that the Aragonese, in order to take it, had to invade Zaragozan territory to do so. Even Fletcher says so. He says, the, quote, The town was in itself not particularly important, but it stands in the foothills of the Pyrenees, and its capture indicated Aragonese designs on bigger towns, such as Barbastro and Huesca, and ultimately upon the rich valley of the river Ebro, and its capital, Zaragoza itself, end quote. Now, Fernando was busy out west, so he sent his eldest son, Sancho II, to deal with the problem. Fletcher continued, quote, What made the campaign memorable was the death of the Aragonese King Ramiro in the battle. He was killed, so it was alleged by a Muslim chronicler, that is, 
who was living in Zaragoza in the 1070s by a skilled frontiersman named Sadada, whose command of the Romance language of the Aragonese troops enabled him to enter their lines in disguise and get near enough to the king to strike him down with a lance blow to the eye, end quote. Yeah, there's something about killing kings in the eye. I just don't get it with these medieval writers, but that's what's said. And that is certainly memorable, but in my opinion, it wasn't the only thing that was memorable about the Aragonese getting a little too big for their britches. There was something else which might have had quite an effect on the future of the peninsula. Sancho II brought a young man, barely 20 years old at this point, along with him to fight the Aragonese and send them packing. The anonymous author of Historia Rodriki, translated as the History of Rodrigo, wrote of a young man who, barely 20 years of age, was called upon to serve with his ruler, Sancho. The Historia Rodriki wrote, quote, When King Sancho went to Zaragoza and fought with Aragonese King Romero at Graus, whom he defeated and killed there, he took Rodrigo Diaz with him. Rodrigo was a part of the army which fought in the victorious battle, end quote. Now, this would be the very first in a very long string of victories for this new character in our story, this, this young man of 20 years old, maybe, named Rodrigo Diaz. And I feel compelled to point out that this was an example of how a Christian king attacked another Christian king in defense of a Muslim taifa. It cannot be overlooked. It kind of rips the rug out from under the whole Christians versus Muslims proto-crusade narrative, doesn't it? Now, after King Fernando I's death in 1065, this is where we ended the last episode, when he'd pushed his territorial holdings to Christian Iberia's largest size since before the Moors flooded onto the peninsula, at his passing, Fernando the Great had counted well over half of the peninsula under his direct ownership or through paid loyalties from Muslim taifa states, and his home was the kingdom of Leon Castile. But, as we said, when he died... He threw all of his accomplishments and unification completely out the window and split it back up, like his father did before him. And it took no time for those rambunctious princes to start duking, duking it out for supremacy, like Fernando did with his brothers. His eldest son, Sancho, became king of Castile. His second son, Alfonso, became king of Leon. And from Leon, which at the time was double the size of Castile, Fernando I carved out half to give to his third son, Garcia. This kingdom was called Galicia. And we can't forget about Fernando's daughters either. Uh, Uraca was given the city of Zamora within Leon, and Elvira took the city of Toro, also located within the kingdom of Leon. With the border set and dad out of the picture, all three brothers would engage the other with, well, fratricidal fervor and one of them would emerge victorious within just seven years of Fernando's death. But during those seven years, another man was rising up through the ranks from being a lowly knight from a well-to-do noble family to the rank of Militium, that is, commander of, of Sancho II's armies. As Fletcher states, quote, that is to say, Rodrigo was given the office in the royal household, commonly known in feudal France or England as constable, end quote. 
But Fletcher writes later about this position. He says, quote, the responsibilities of this officer were far wider than the merely domestic or ceremonial. The armagère, which was another word for it, by the way, armagère was responsible for overseeing the king's household militia, the body of troops who formed the king's escort and were the nucleus of the royal army. While we do not possess any contemporary description of the duties of the armagère, it is likely that he was responsible for recruiting, training, and keeping order among these often unruly young men, perhaps for supervising the arrangements for their payment, too. He had to have an eye for potential talent, to be demanding in his appraisal of mounts and equipment, to be firm and tactful in sorting out the scrapes his subordinates landed themselves in. He was also one of the king's principal military advisors. Thus, the armagère had to be at once staff officer, adjutant, regimental sergeant major, and something of a counselor. End quote. Yeah, so this Rodrigo Diaz guy was, he was a bit of a badass by his early 20s. And these were the days when Sancho II didn't quite have the firmest hold, quite yet, on his domains. So Rodrigo was sent to and fro with demanding job after demanding job, and it was a good thing that he was paid well for his troubles. And by 1067, just two years after his father's death and before he'd consolidated the various kingdoms of his brothers, something called the War of the Three Sanchos not to be confused with another War of the Three Sanchos that'll happen in a couple centuries. Gotta say, historians are the best namers of things, aren't they? Well, Sancho II would have to deal with these as he was one of those three Sanchos. The War of the Three Sanchos. It's just funny to say. Okay, so one from Castile, that is one Sancho from Castile, that one would be Rodrigo's boss and son of the great Fernando I. That would be Sancho II, King of Castile, as we know. The other two Sanchos were Count Sancho IV of Navarre and King Sancho Ramirez of Aragon, both cousins to Sancho II from Castile. Now, it should be noted that King Sancho Ramirez uh, was the son of a recently deceased King of Aragon. So, I know, I know, sorry, but I I honestly can't make this stuff up. There are just uh, an abundance of Sanchos here. So I should preface this by saying there was already some bad blood between King Sancho Ramirez of Aragon and King Sancho II of Castile. If you remember from the top of the show, Sancho II, under direct orders from his father, he was to load up and ride an army to Zaragoza and reclaim the town of Graus. It's worth the reminder to say that Rodrigo Diaz is said to be with Sancho here, though nowhere near the rank he would rise to. This was the year 1063, and those days as a right-hand man uh, to Sancho II were still four years off at least. Now, Sancho II kicked out R- King Ramiro I of Aragon, who had invaded. King Ramiro I was Sancho Ramiro's father. Thus, upon Ramiro I's death, his son, Sancho Ramiro, took the crown of Aragon. So, a little bit of bad blood there. Now, fast forward to 1067, and Sancho Ramiro and Sancho IV of Navarre decided to join forces and invade Zaragoza once again. Even Fletcher admits that reports of this so-called War of the Three Sanchos are scarce and unreliable, but it would absolutely make sense because of the bad blood between the men. Again, Sancho II killed Sancho Ramiro's father at Graus four years earlier, 
and Zaragoza's suzerainty was willed to Sancho II by Fernando I. So Sancho II would have to respond to would have to respond to such a threat. Either way, the best we can determine is that Sancho II won, because not only did Zaragoza remain untouched afterwards by Aragon and Navarre, but Sancho II would also go on to take most of Iberia for himself. But first, tragedy struck that same year. On November the 2nd, 1067, the Dowager Empress Sancha, remember Fernando I claimed the title of Christian Iberia's first emperor, well, Empress Sancha died. And many families experience this phenomenon. A matriarch or patriarch of the family holds it all together, but before the body's even cold, the family immediately rips itself apart. Well, that's bloody well likely what happened upon Sancha's death in 1067. With almost no warning, in 1068, Sancho II invaded the much-coveted Kingdom of Leon, and at the Battle of Lantara, Sancho defeated his little brother, Alfonso VI. But it wasn't a kingdom-collapsing sort of victory, because Alfonso VI retreated to either Oviedo or the city of Leon to regroup. Leon, as a kingdom, would remain under Alfonso's control for the time being. The only conclusion would be that both men took devastating casualties and losses, and though it was recorded as a Castilian victory, it didn't seem like it was, very, it was a very decisive victory. In 1071, though, both Sancho II and Alfonso VI decided to gang up on their little brother, King Garcia of Galicia, who's just off on the west, just kind of hanging out doing his own thing. Joint rulership was set up in Galicia between Sancho and Alfonso, but anyone with half a brain cell could see that that just wasn't tenable. Within nine months, Sancho captured his little brother Alfonso, like physically captured him. He threw him in a Castilian prison and then realized that as long as he was in Christian lands, he was a voice that was listened to, or could be. So Sancho II exiled Alfonso VI to Sancho's vassal in Toledo to be under the supervision of its taifa king, Al-Mamun. And whatever happened to the younger brother, what was his name? Oh, yeah, Garcia, that's right. Garcia, yeah, whatever happened to that guy anyway? Well, Garcia could read the writing on the wall, and he, he exiled himself to Seville. And thus Sancho II reunited his father's mighty kingdom, becoming king of Leon, Castile, and Galicia all, as we said before, within seven years of Fernando's death. It was impressive to be sure, and tons of credit goes to Sancho II for navigating nearly the same waters as his father had a generation earlier, to much the same results. And if you remember that young man Rodrigo Diaz had slowly but surely risen to prominence, Fletcher, Fletcher quotes the author of the Historica, Historia Roderici here, quote, in every battle which King Sancho fought with King Alfonso, Atlantada or Golpejera, and defeated him, Rodrigo bore the king's royal standard and distinguished himself among the soldiers and bettered himself thereby. End quote. So there you have it. Rodrigo Diaz had taken his first swings of the sword in battle in 1063 under Sancho II's command, and proceeded to serve the prince quite loyally until 1072, when this same prince had unified his father's realm once again, this time as king of them all. 
Rodrigo was now a seasoned warrior in his own right. He'd commanded in camps, commanded on the march, and commanded on the battlefield. He served at the side of his king, and his voice was respected by his king. The experience of young Rodrigo, not even 30 years old at this point, it's just incredible to think about, all by the year 1072. But 1072 wasn't just a reunifying year, though. No, 1072 was also the year that the unifying King Sancho II of Leon Castile and Galicia died. October 7th, 1072 to be precise. Yeah, it was the craziest thing, too. I mean, who would have seen that coming? See, Sancho was responding to something, something not exactly in the records, which is pretty suspect in the first place, if you ask me, south of the city Leon. And it was outside of a town called Zamora, and Zamora was in the frontier. No, wait, let, let me put the right amount of emphasis here. It was in the frontier, like out there, like borders shifted with the wind kind of frontier. Like, like the people who lived there probably had no idea who the ruler of the month was at the time. Nobody enjoyed living in that area then. And Zamora seemed more of a way station, if anything. It's on the north bank of the River Duero, quite close to the modern border between Spain and Portugal in the then-kingdom of Leon. But even that was suspect. Again, it was way, way out there, you know? But something pulled Sancho's forces there. Fletcher writes, quote, This in itself suggests that the trouble which took Sancho to Zamora was an attempt to invade his kingdom from the south, that is to say, from the taifas of either Badajoz or Toledo that the king himself should have gone to Zamora suggests that the threat was serious, end quote. Now, here's where it gets interesting, if you ask me. Fletcher continues, quote, It lies on the main road, Roman in origin, leading from south to north across easy level country, which can be quickly traversed, up to the imperial city of Leon. An invasion from the south by way of Zamora is likely to have been directed at Leon, all these considerations lead one to suppose that the thrust was planned by the deposed Alfonso VI of Leon, exiled in Toledo. Was it even led by him? One of our sources, possibly the earliest, tells us that Alfonso was in Zamora at the time of his brother's death. End quote. So is that a smoking gun? Maybe. But if you can believe it, there's even more to Sancho II's death. See, Uraca, if you remember, was not only Sancho and Alfonso's sister, but she was also willed the town of Zamora by her father. And Zamora, again, was in Leon. Could Sancho's own sister, Uraca, play a part in his death? In addition to Zamora being Uraca's town, she was also married to a man named Pedro Ansures, who was a part of a very prominent uh, Leonese family. See, as Fletcher says, Pedro was just as close to Alfonso VI as Rodrigo was to Sancho II. In fact, Rodrigo was on an incredibly successful path himself. Pedro was elevated by Alfonso to count just a year earlier. Fletcher writes, quote, His, meaning Pedro's, fortunes fell with his kings, and he accompanied Alfonso into his Toledan exile. He had everything to gain by supporting the attempted comeback, end quote. Well, there you have it. I mean, 
motive, at least, has been firmly established. And Fletcher adds, quote, All surviving sources save one agree that Sancho met his death through treachery. End quote. This story reminds me of the story of Marcus Cicero, staunch opponent of Julius Caesar toward the end of the Roman Republic. Cicero was in the, he was in the Senate chamber and witnessed the barbaric carnage of the assassination of the Roman dictator. He saw the light glinting off the blades that struck in and out of that man's torso, soaking his white toga a deep dark red. He heard the screams of his colleagues, the prominent Roman senators, as they ran from the hall, many of them unaware of the murderous plot. And yet, it's said that Cicero remained. He looked upon his political opponent, his ruler, living legend, Julius Caesar, with pity as the man lay on the marble floors now stained maroon, the man bleeding out and dying in the most hallowed of halls of mighty Rome. And here we get one of the many enduring lines in all of the Western canon, uttered by the most respected senator in the Republic's long history. Qui bono. It's translated to, who benefits. See, Fernando I created a world like he grew into, a world where brother was pitted against brother. Those brothers duked it out, and one, Sancho II, emerged victorious. The victor responds in force, understandably, to quell an uprising in a city inside his defeated little brother's realm, only to end up mysteriously dead. So I, and just about everyone else in history, mind you, I ask, qui bono? Who benefited from Sancho II's untimely demise? Today we have a similar saying, follow the money. But it's the exact same line of thinking, only a thousand years apart. You can always find a culprit for a crime when you trace it back to who benefits from the act. From Julius Caesar's death, men such as Brutus and Cassius benefited from it greatly. From Sancho II's death, who was to benefit? Well, there was one other person to have benefited from Julius Caesar's death, to go back to that example. Marcus Cicero. He was catapulted back into the spotlight of Roman politics and oratory. But is everyone who benefits at fault for what happened? Well, certainly Cicero had plenty to gain with Caesar's assassination, but does that automatically make him complicit in the conspiracy? You know, I'm not sure if Richard Fletcher has an opinion on Cicero, but he does have an opinion on Alfonso with regards to Sancho II's death. He writes, quote, Alfonso profited from Sancho's death, but that does not make him guilty of it, any more than Henry I's accession to the English throne in 1100 proves that he was guilty of his brother William Rufus in the New Forest. End quote. Dang it, Richard. No spoilers, man. We'll get to that soon enough. All right. Sorry about that, folks. But minus the spoilers here, Fletcher makes a great point. Absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But if we admit that to record, then we also have to admit to the record it's reciprocal. Evidence of absence isn't absence of evidence. In the end, we know nothing, really. <laughs> um, Fletcher adds, quote-unquote, speculation is fruitless. I disagree, though. Speculation adds intrigue and a sense of humanity to our history. 
In the course of human events, we have to consider a lot of crap that people tend to do. And I think speculation enriches the experience of learning history and teaches us to consider all sides of our past, not just the sides that the current powers that would be would like us to know. The danger lies in assuming that your speculation is truth. In the case of Sancho II, evidence abounds that Alfonso VI, his own brother, could have very well been behind Sancho's death, but we just don't know. And looking at it from a distance of, you know, a thousand years, all we have is speculation. But if you can imagine it, there's something that actually eclipses Sancho II's possible assassination. Yeah, it's, it's that Rodrigo Diaz guy again. The Historia Rodriki says, quote, When King Sancho besieged Zamora, it happened that Rodrigo Diaz fought alone with 15 enemy knights, one of them killed, two he wounded and unhorsed, and the remainder he put to flight by his spirited courage, end quote. Okay, so probably largely legendary narrative there, but it's still cool to think about. This Rodrigo fella needs a publicist and a Twitter feed with all the background work he's been doing for himself. So seriously, what happened to Rodrigo Diaz, right-hand man and likely close confidant to King Sancho II, upon his king's death? Well, first, who benefited from Sancho's death the most? Well, that's easy. Alfonso VI assumed control of all of Sancho's domains and became king of Leon, Castile, and Galicia. And if Rodrigo was going to survive, having served so closely and so effectively Sancho for so long, he would have to make peace with, his, with this new monarch. According to the Historia Rodrigo, he did. It says, quote, after the death of his lord, King Sancho, who had maintained and loved him well, King Alfonso received him with honor as his vassal and kept him in his entourage with very respectful affection, end quote. Yeah, right. Rodrigo Diaz's talents would most definitely been accepted by King Alfonso VI, but it couldn't possibly be that easy. We know that he didn't hold the position of Armiger for the rest of his life because records indicate that a man named Gonzalo Diaz held the position from 1072 forward. No relation in the Diaz there, as far as we know. But as a charter from 1073 says, just one year later, we know that Rodrigo Diaz was present at King Alfonso VI's side. And between 1073 and 1076, Rodrigo must have served Alfonso well because in May of 1076, Alfonso gave Rodrigo his relative, a woman named Jimena, to marry. Though there is a problem with dates in the records, so it may have been as late as 1078. However, 1076 seems the most likely year as a later record, probably a copy of the original maybe, stated that Rodrigo and Jimena granted land to a monastery near Silos, says Fletcher. We know Rodrigo Diaz had made it securely in the king's good graces by 1080, because, as Fletcher states, quote, he attended the important council held at Burgos, at which Alfonso VI and his leading churchmen, following the bidding of the papal legate, Cardinal Richard of Marseille, 
formally accepted sweeping liturgical changes in the Spanish church by abandoning the ancient Mozarabic liturgy in favor of the Roman one, end quote. Now, it wasn't just an age of peace in Leon, Castile, and Galicia throughout the 1070s. During that time, Alfonso VI capitalized on the assassination of the Navarrese king by annexing Navarre, as well as other Basque regions. As for the Taifas paying their annual parias, well, Alfonso VI had little empathy for them and subsequently raised the already suffocating payments, causing a lot of unrest and turmoil to his south. And with the growing Almoravid movement in northern Africa and its influence slowly seeping into the minds of Alfonso's southern taifa kings, Liberia is beginning a slow boil throughout the 1070s that will eventually come to the brink of an eruption. But this is where we end this episode of the podcast, because we can't possibly grasp this legendary era of Spanish and Portuguese and Berber history without seeing it through the lens of the legend it produced. On the next episode, we will take a little step back and catch us up, not by following the real Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, rather by setting up a little context of the man and his society, and then catapulting ourselves into the legend of the Spanish national hero, El Cid. I can't wait to uncover this one. Until next time. <laughs>